bringing you the latest in tax credit news. This is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. The legislative challenges have been significant. We very much need the legislation. we got to produce housing. We're still in a very volatile industry. It's a challenging atmosphere for almost anyone. We can't get all these mixed signals and messages. If he doesn't have a bipartisan bill, nothing's going to happen. Alternative energy is still very expensive. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, November 20th, 2012. I begin this week's podcast with the latest updates available regarding negotiations related to the fiscal cliff. I will also discuss the status of the implementation of new regulatory capital rules under Basel III. In the Long Housing Tax Credit section, I'll review briefly the latest housing goals set by the Federal Housing Finance Agency for Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. And at the state level, I have a brief update from New York where the Department of Home and Community Renewal has extended the deadline for filing its unified funding application. The deadline is being extended to accommodate the delays resulting from the impact of Hurricane Sandy. In this week's Historic Tax Credit section, I'll share some news regarding training opportunities for historic preservation, as well as, at the state level, I'll turn to Alabama, where a historic tax credit was proposed but not enacted during the last legislative session. In our New Market Tax Credit segment, I'll also discuss the latest efforts to extend the New Market Tax Credit, as well as a request from the CD5 Fund, which is seeking to assess the impact of Superstorm Sandy on CDFIs, CDEs, and the populations they serve. And finally, in our Renewable Energy discussion, I'll share recent developments from the Governor's Wind Energy Coalition, which is actively encouraging lawmakers to extend the Wind Energy Production Tax Credit. I also will have two state-level updates from Hawaii and Pennsylvania. If you're ready, let's get started. In general news, I'll start today with an update on the status of discussions around the fiscal cliff. To that end, I note that Congress is not in session this week. Lawmakers left the Capitol for Thanksgiving break, and they're scheduled to return on November 27th to continue the lame duck session of Congress. That said, Chief negotiators for the parties involved do continue to meet in the interim. Now, in case you're wondering how long the lame duck session can technically last, the lame duck session of the 112th Congress, the one we're in now, could last until January 3, 2013, at which time the new 113th Congress is sworn in. Now, regarding the fiscal cliff, House Speaker John Boehner Majority Leader Harry Reid and President Obama have each expressed interest in compromising on a fiscal cliff deal. However, it remains to be seen if the gap between Republicans and Democrats can be bridged. However, if agreement can be found on tax legislation more generally, all reports from Washington, D.C. suggest that it's highly likely that a tax extenders bill would be included, in which case such a measure would likely include a number of provisions of interest to listeners, including potential extensions of the 9% low encompassing tax credit floor, the new market tax credit at $3.5 billion, and the wind energy production tax credit. On Friday last week, 
there was much discussion surrounding the starting points for the negotiations. Many believe Speaker Boehner's starting point for revenue is $700 to $800 billion over 10 years, an amount that Speaker Boehner hopes to achieve without raising tax rates, but rather achieving it in part through limitations among the wealthy on certain deductions, exemptions, exclusions, and credits. The President's initial revenue proposal appears to be about $1.6 trillion, about double Speaker Boehner's number. I did tweet last Friday some details about President Obama's initial revenue proposal of the $1.6 trillion. That number comes from President Obama's fiscal year-end 2013 budget that was submitted to Congress earlier this year. As such, the President's initial proposal includes the following. Tax cuts for families, individuals, and businesses of $359 billion, Revenue raisers by sunsetting the 2001-2003 tax cuts for upper-income taxpayers of $849 billion, $143 billion raised through modifying estate and gift taxes, another $584 billion in taxes raised over 10 years by reducing the value of tax preferences for upper-income taxpayers, nearly $150 billion in revenue from reforming international taxes, and then a series of proposals to repeal LIFO accounting method, certain oil and gas preferences, reinstate the Superfund tax, and other proposals that are about $183 billion. I also note, and this was specifically mentioned in the summary released by Treasury, that the President would include revenue of $13 billion by taxing carried interests, income from carried interests, at ordinary income levels. Now, by referencing the President's budget and coming up with this $1.6 trillion in net tax increases over 10 years, the President was implicitly including the following items of interest to our listeners. These are items that were in the fiscal year in 2013 budget and are part of this $1.6 trillion theoretical initial offer. New market tax rate extension at $5 billion, 48 cap C extension for advanced energy manufacturing, several long-compensing tax credit provisions, 100% expensing for an additional year, extending the payroll tax cut, and providing the new manufacturing communities tax credit that was previously discussed uh, in prior podcasts. Now, I don't think these items are all likely to be included in the ultimate settlement or agreement if such an agreement is reached. However, it is notable to note that implicit in that $1.6 trillion number that you're hearing about are all these items. I do also note that there was one notable revenue raiser that was omitted from the president's budget, and that was the president's proposed financial services fee. Now, there was also, in addition to the president meeting with the leader of both parties in the House and the Senate, there was another key bipartisan meeting held last week, and that was of the Senate Finance Committee. The Senate Finance Committee met to discuss the fiscal cliff and, not too surprisingly, they were unable to come to an agreement on how to move forward to avert falling off the fiscal cliff. That said, the fact that they met is a good thing as Democrats and Republicans strive for agreement. I also note that Senate Finance Committee Chairman Max Baucus did say everything was on the table. As we watch, read, and listen about the fiscal cliff deliberations coming out of Washington, D.C. in the coming weeks, I also suggest that you also monitor at least two other areas. 
More broadly, I'd suggest that you listen to public commentary about the fiscal cliff, and more specifically, that you monitor the market's reactions to the discussions. More broadly, monitor the public sentiment about the consequences of falling off the fiscal cliff. Many have noted, I think correctly, that the fiscal cliff is more like a slope. And some, such as Warren Buffett, the Oracle of Omaha, have said that publicly they do not think the U.S. will go into a recession as a result of falling off the cliff. And then on the other extreme, Alan Greenspan has noted that if the U.S. suffers a recession in order to solve the fiscal crisis, that may be a small price to pay for getting one's house in order. Now, if the fiscal cliff is viewed as more of a fiscal slope and falling off it isn't as dire as possibly feared, then the chances of falling off the cliff obviously rise. Now, in addition to monitoring public sentiment, I'd also suggest that you watch for a possible TARP moment, a moment when the financial markets make a statement that the fiscal cliff is real and a solution is needed now. As you may recall, a sharp drop in the stock market provided the impetus for passage of TARP. Now, I'll have more information on the fiscal cliff in next week's podcast. And in the interim, I'll post updates via Twitter and the notes from Novogratic blog, as conditions warrant. As the East Coast continues to make efforts to recover from Superstorm Sandy, Congress is taking notice and beginning to discuss a Superstorm Sandy recovery bill. Now, it's still unclear if such a funding bill will have a tax title, but in the event it does, look for the following. An increase in loan-composing tax rate allocation for affected areas and states, as well as automatic qualification for the 30% loan-composing tax credit difficult-to-develop bonus. Look for additional new market tax rate allocations for investments in affected areas. Look also for a higher historic tax credit percentage of 26% versus 20%. There could also be additional tax and bond allocation. By way of reference, after Hurricane Katrina, GoZone bonds were authorized at the rate of $2,500 per capita for the applicable GoZone area. And also look for expanded 50% or 100% depreciation expensing for assets placed in service in Superstorm Sandy-affected areas within a certain period of time. Next, I'd like to briefly turn to a hearing held on the impact of proposed bank capital rules. As listeners may recall, in June, federal banking agencies issued three notices of proposed rulemaking that would revise and replace the current regulatory capital rules. Last week, the Senate Committee on Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs held a hearing entitled Oversight of Basel III, Impact of Proposed Capital Rules. Now, the committee heard testimony from three key witnesses. Michael Gibson, he's the Director of the Division of Banking Supervision and Regulation from the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System. They heard from John Lyons, Chief National Bank Examiner with the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, and George French, Deputy Director for Policy in the Division of Risk Management Supervision at the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. Now, you can find these witnesses' testimony online at banking.senate.gov. But I'll say that the most significant news on the regulatory capital rulemaking front was the statement that was released by the federal banking agencies involved in updating the regulatory capital rules. And this statement said that the agencies do not, that's right, they do not 
expect that any of the proposed rules would become effective on January 1, 2013. Previously, there were indications and statements that that was the hoped-for date at which the rules become effective. Now, there appears to be wide acceptance that the rules will not go into effect on January 1, 2013, and it's currently unclear when such rules would go into effect. Lastly, in the general news section, let's turn to the Federal Housing Administration. Last week, the Federal Housing Administration, FHA, issued its annual financial status report to Congress. In its report, HUD noted that an independent study found that as the housing market continues to recover, the capital reserve ratio of the MMI fund, that's the fund used to support FHA's single-family mortgage and reverse mortgage insurance programs, that fund fell below zero to negative 1.44%. This falling below zero represents a negative economic value of $16.3 billion. Now, HUD did go on to say in the press release that, that this does not mean that FHA has insufficient cash to pay insurance claims, nor does it mean it has a current operating deficit or that it will need to immediately draw funds from the Treasury. The need to draw on Treasury funds is determined not by the economic assumptions of this independent study, but rather those used in the President's fiscal year 2014 budget proposal that will be released next February. Now, the actuary's estimate of the fund's economic value excludes $11 billion in expected capital accumulation through the end of fiscal year 2013, which would, in theory, be somewhat of an offset to the $16.3 billion in negative net worth that was found. Finally, HUD also noted that its report includes additional actions designed to contribute billions of dollars in added value to the MMI fund over the next several years. In historic tax credit news, the Advisory Council on Historic Preservation announced that it will hold 10 Section 106 training sessions throughout the country in 2013. So what is Section 106? Section 106 is the part of the National Historic Preservation Act of 1966 that provides the guidelines for the historic preservation review process. The Advisory Council oversees the process and offers training for those participating in the Historic Tax Credit Program and other rehabilitation programs. The 2013 classes will include introductory and advanced sessions. The Advisory Council on Historic Preservation recommends that federal, state, or local government officials tribal representatives, private consultants, as well as the interested public attend the sessions. You can find registration forms and detailed information about the classes online at www.achp.gov. Now turning to Alabama for a moment, Alabama's legislature doesn't convene until February, but local economic development officials and downtown improvement associations are already urging lawmakers to reconsider creating a state historic tax credit program. In the previous legislative session, Representative Victor Gaston introduced HB 271 that would establish a state historic tax credit for Alabama. The legislation would have authorized an income tax equal to 25% of the cost of rehabilitating an historic structure. Unfortunately, that bill was defeated last year. However, a similar proposal is expected to be introduced next year. 
economic development organizations, such as Operation New Birmingham, are pushing for the credit. These groups argue that there are clear benefits to creating a historic tax credit program in Alabama. Now, we'll continue to monitor this situation and provide an update as soon as the bill is introduced. And for coverage of recent changes to existing state historic tax credit programs, I invite you to pick up a copy of the December issue of the Novogratz Journal of Tax Credits. In low-income housing tax credit news, the Federal Housing Finance Agency issued a final rule last week establishing annual housing goals for mortgage purchased by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. These new benchmarks cover both low-income and very low-income single-family and multifamily housing mortgage purchases by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac for the years 2012, 2013, and 2014. Now, FHFA had previously issued goals for Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac for 2010 and 2011. Both enterprises, I note, exceeded the low-income housing family goals for those years. In 2011, Fannie Mae had a goal of over 177,000 units financed by multifamily low-income units. They actually ended up financing 301,000 units that qualified as low-income. Freddie Mac had a goal in 2011 of 161,000 low-income units and actually financed mortgages or purchased mortgages that supported 229,000 low-income units. Now, low-income units are for those households earning up to 80% of area median income. Very low-income would be those at 50% of area median income. The goal for Fannie Mae for 2012 for low-income units is 285000 It has a goal of 20000 less for 2013, or 265000 and 15000 fewer in 2014 of 250000 So FHFA is projecting goals for Fannie Mae that are less than their 2011 production and declining over time. 2011 was 301,000, down to 285 in 2012, 265 in 2013, and 250 in 2014. Turning to Freddie Mac, remembering that its 2011 production was 229, its goal for 2012 is down slightly to 225,000 units, and then down to 215,000 units, and then down to 200,000 low-income units. Similarly, on the very low-income unit side, Fannie Mae's goal for 2012 is 80,000, and then 70,000, and then 60,000, and Freddie Mac's in 2012 is 59,000, and then 50,000 in 2013, and then 40,000 in 2014. Now you notice there is a decline, and the question is why would FHFA be projecting a decline in the number of units financed by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac in the multifamily low-income and very low-income space. Well, the agency says that the goals reflect its expectations that the enterprise's market share will decline as banks and other lending institutions return to the multifamily lending market. And they note that this conclusion is based in part on record low interest rates and declining vacancy rates in the multifamily housing market. Now, the final rule will take effect on December 13th. And if you have any 
interest in seeing more details about these, this rule and some of the detailed explanations. It is a 60-page rule, so there's lots more information in there. Simply go to www.taxcredithousing.com, and we have posted the notice online. Now, turning to New York for a moment, we have another announcement related to recovery from Superstorm Sandy. Last week, New York's Department of Home and Community Renewal extended the deadline for its funding application. This extension is to accommodate for the impact of Hurricane Sandy on the East Coast. The deadline has been moved from November 29th, just a couple weeks away, to January 8th, 2013. The agency announced that its staff will continue to be available for application assistance throughout the process. Also, prospective applicants are encouraged to have a pre-application assistance meeting. There's more information online at www.nyshcr.org. And if you're thinking of submitting an application, I'd encourage you to contact the Novogradic New York City office. In renewable energy news, at the beginning of the lame duck session of Congress last week, Iowa Governor, Republican, Terry Branstead, and Oregon Governor, a Democrat, John Keatshaber, wrote to House and Senate leaders urging them to act on an extension of the wind production tax credit. The governors wrote the letter on behalf of the Governor's Wind Energy Coalition and addressed the letter to Majority Leader Harry Reid and Minority Leader Mitch McConnell in the Senate, as well as Speaker John Boehner in the House and Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi. According to the letter, the production tax credit has generated as much as $20 billion in private investment annually in each of the past five years and created jobs that have employed more than 75,000 workers. The governors emphasized the importance of a multi-year production tax credit extension, such as the one proposed in the bipartisan bill passed by the Senate Finance Committee. Now, as renewable energy professionals know, a multi-year extension is essential because of the 18- to 24-month time frame needed to plan and finance wind projects. In addition to writing the letter, Governors Branstead and Keatshaber participated in a conference call last week to call for an extension of the production tax credit. And joining them on the call were Kansas Governor Sam Brownback, Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper, and Iowa Senator Charles Grassley. Senator Grassley, by the way, authored the original production tax credit legislation back in 1992. Stay tuned for future updates on the status of the extension in future podcasts. Next, I'd like to turn to Hawaii and then Pennsylvania. In Hawaii, earlier this month, Hawaii's Department of Taxation announced new temporary administrative rules for its Renewable Energy Technologies Income Tax Credit. Now, the new rules apply to tax credits claimed under the other solar energy tax systems, such as photovoltaic systems, that will be placed into service on or after January 1, 2013. If you have questions about these new rules, I'd encourage you to contact Stephen Tracy in our San Francisco office. Also, Tony Caponi in our Boston office could help you as well. Turning to Pennsylvania, the Pennsylvania State Senate is now considering legislation that's designed to help the state's declining solar renewable energy credit, or SREC, market. The market suffered due to an oversupply of SRECs. There are several provisions included in legislation designed to increase the demand and reduce the oversupply. It's Senate Bill 1350, and once again, if you have questions about SRECs in Pennsylvania, 
contact Tony Graponi in our Boston office or Stephen Tracy in our San Francisco office. In new market tax credit news, the Opportunity Finance Network last week invited supporters of the new market tax credit to sign on to a letter that it's going to send to Congress that urges lawmakers to extend the new market tax credit program. The letter argues that extending the tax credit will help the nation continue to recover from the Great Recession. And it does this by channeling capital and jobs to the communities hardest hit by the economic downturn. And as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, an extension of the tax credit is on the table as Congress considers how they're going to address the fiscal cliff. So do stay tuned. Also last week, the CDFI fund invited CDFIs and CDEs that have communities in their service areas affected by Hurricane Sandy to assess the impact on their organizations and the customers they serve. And furthermore, to share that information with the CDFI fund. And a message posted online and circulated by email last week, CDFI fund director Donna Gambrell said that CDFIs have and will play an extremely important role in supporting the recovery in the communities that are in dire need at this time. As such, the CDFI fund is seeking to determine what those organizations are facing now as well as going forward. The agency posted a series of questions aimed at evaluating the impact of the storm. Those questions can be found online at www.cdfifund.gov. Furthermore, the CDFI fund has asked that the responses to this inquiry be sent no later than November 30th. And responses should be sent to public affairs office at cdfi.tres.gov. Once again, send the responses to public affairs office at cdfi.tres.gov. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. Please join me again next week for another Tax Credit Tuesday. We're sure to have more updates on the status of the ongoing negotiations on the fiscal cliff. And I do expect that whatever resolution or lack of resolution occurs will occur before Tuesday, December 25th. The weekend just before that date is likely to be an eventful weekend. This is Michael Novogratik, and I'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik and Company, LLP. Archive discussions are available online at www.novoco.com slash podcast or by subscribing to the Novogratik Report on tax credits in iTunes. Novogratik & Company LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with 13 offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novoco.com.